Every week around Thursday, if I haven't already sent my sermon title and meditation, yes, you can blame me for most of the meditations, uh, to Lisa and Heather and others, Lisa will at some point grab me and say, do you have the meditation and the sermon title yet? And that happened this past Sunday. I thought I'd already given it to her, but she was asking about that, and she said, what, what's the sermon title? And I said, oh, what is it? And she said, yes, what is it? And I said, you've got it. It is that. What is it? No, that's the title. What is it? And we'll explain why it is later, although you may have already gotten a little bit of that from the passage. For now, in her book, Daring Greatly, it's a great book, many of you have probably read it, Brene Brown explores the transformational power of, of vulnerability and how the courage to be vulnerable can transform the way we live, love, parent, and lead. And early on in the book, Brene Brown identifies scarcity as one of the primary inhibitors of vulnerability. You notice the tie there to the meditation on the front of the worship guide. Brown says, scarcity is the never enough problem. And in some of her workshops, what she'll do is she'll ask participants to fill in between never and enough what they think there is never enough of in their life. And here are some of the common answers. Never good enough. Never perfect enough. Never thin enough. Never powerful enough. Never successful enough. Never certain enough. Never extraordinary enough. Never enough. Now, does any of that seem familiar to any of you? Global activist Lynn Twist has said, We spend most of the hours and days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. Before we even rise out of bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already feeling inadequate already feeling behind, already feeling like we're losing, already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with a litany of what we didn't get, what we didn't get done, and all other kinds of things like that that day. Go, we go to sleep then burdened by these thoughts and wake up to a reverie of lack. Brown echoes this in her book saying, Scarcity thrives in a culture where everyone is hyper-aware of lack. Everything from safety and love to money and resources feel restricted or lacking. We spend inordinate amounts of time calculating how much we want, how much we have, how much we don't have, how much everyone else has, needs, and wants. And what makes this constant assessing and comparing so self-defeating is that we are often comparing our lives, our marriages, our families, and our communities to unattainable, media-driven versions of perfection or We're holding up our reality against our own fictional account of how great someone else has it. And there's one little other note that Brown puts in here that is pertinent for our work today. So hear this. Nostalgia 
is also a dangerous form of comparison. Think about how often we compare ourselves and our lives to a memory that nostalgia has so completely edited that it never really existed. Remember when? Oh, those were the times, weren't they? Those were the days. I don't know about you, but I resonate so strongly with those last words. The nostalgic re-editing of history. Isn't it amazing how often the present seems like it's, it's not quite right? Like it's not quite enough, especially compared to the future we're longing for and the past that was certainly so much better than it is now. Isn't it incredible how much our re-edited past is so often so much more full of meaning and glory and joy and success than it was when we were living through it? Maybe you haven't had that experience. But the Hebrews of Exodus certainly did. We tune into their story and we see this happening around six weeks after they've been liberated from over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. For over 400 years, they have been shaped by the powers of bondage and oppression. For over 400 years, they've cried out to God for liberation from that bondage and oppression. And now, here after over 400 years of powerlessness, pain, and prayer, God has finally set them free in the most miraculous of ways. Powerful signs, plagues, parting of the Red Sea had all paved the way for this monumental moment in Exodus 16 where we find them now complaining. Verse 2, look at it again. The whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Over 400 years of slavery, followed by the most miraculous series of responses from God ever, and now... After only six weeks, they want to go back? Perhaps this isn't so different, difficult for us to understand, though. After all, we know about this living phenomenon, this psychological phenomenon that often keeps people in destructive and abusive relationships. Not that it's ever easy for us to understand why people we love choose to remain in habitually abusive relationships, but we do understand that there are a pile of fears that foster this kind of thing, including but not limited to, who will I be cut off from if I leave? What will happen to my oppressor after I leave? I do still love them after all. How will I support myself and my children if I leave? What kind of shame will follow me after I leave, and at the bottom of all of this, if I leave, will I have enough? 
The answer, I hope, in a world where God and Christian community exists is always yes. But it's not always so easy to see the yes or even to appreciate the yes when we do see it, and that's what's happening here. These people had become accustomed to being cared for by an abusive slave driver, and over time, they had bought into the lie that scarcity was their only truth, their only possibility, their only way forward, the only life that they could live. It's a lie that needed to die in them, and it's a lie that needs to die in many of us too. Somewhere along the way, most of us have at some point cried out to God for deliverance. For a new place in life, for a new way of life that would bring more freedom and more peace and, 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 and more meaning to our current circumstance. Many of us at some point have sensed the response of God even calling us through the waters of baptism into that new life and that new land. We've embraced it. We've celebrated it. Our communities have come together and celebrated it with us. But then at some point, perhaps after only six weeks, perhaps after even six years, we came to believe that the ways of our old life, the ways of our old masters of greed and pride, and self-sufficiency and ego and scarcity are actually much more comfortable, much more appealing, much more equipped to sustain us than the God who has promised to deliver us. God continues to urge us onward, but we're a little thrown off by the discomfort of it all. And so we turn back. We turn back at some point, rejecting the bread of God for the bread of Pharaoh, and we turn back. We camouflage our lives with church so that we can fool ourselves and others into believing we haven't turned back, but most of us, in some way or another, we've turned back. Fortunately for the Hebrews, they didn't really have that option. They didn't really have that choice as much as they wanted to turn back, they couldn't hear. And so instead, what they did was they simply grumbled. They grumbled about God, and they grumbled about what God had given them by grumbling about what God hadn't given them, with the grumbling hope that God might respond to this grumbling by giving them even more. And in response, God did. In response, Steve, God gave them manna. But would there be enough? See, enough was the point. God wanted them to know that they would have enough. Enough intervention for liberation. Enough enough of a pathway to cross the sea, and even now enough quail and just enough manna for this mysterious manna to sustain them and help them survive. Just, just enough. And how do they respond to the meeting out of this miraculous meal? Like a child being introduced to her first casserole. 
or even like a 45-year-old being introduced to his 500th casserole. What is it? What, what, what is it? What is it? What is it is actually one of the ways people have translated the word manna over the years. Manna actually means what is it? And I like to say it in the way that I said it because I imagine that's how they said it in the desert. Because I think implied in this question is another question that we really ought to pay attention to. And that is this. You're the God who just delivered us from Pharaoh and this is the best you can come up with? Surely you can do better than that. Or maybe, maybe you can't. Maybe we were better off with Pharaoh. And there it is, friends. The edited history the reshaped nostalgia of days gone by, the good old days that were never as good as we remember them. The Hebrews had bread in Egypt, for sure. Plenty of it, probably. Though it probably tasted a little bit different. It was probably baked a little bit different. It probably came from different hands in different ways. It was probably just a little bit different than this stuff they were getting in the desert because you know what? It was the bread of never enough. The bread of never good enough. The bread of never perfect enough. The bread of never powerful enough. It was never really enough, though in hindsight, it sure do seem like it was. Probably because it was the bread they were used to. It's almost always easier to stick with the bread of the life we know, right? Than to try something different because we know it. Because we know what it is. But what we see here in this story is worth paying attention to for them and for us. What we see here is that sometimes the bread of God, the bread we've been longing for, the bread we've been crying out for, does not come to us in the way we expected or thought we wanted. What we see here is that sometimes God gives us just enough Because we need to learn how to live with just enough. Not less than enough. Not more than enough. But enough. And sometimes we need our definition of enough reshaped and redefined. What we see here is that sometimes God responds to our cries for help by sending us enough of exactly what we need to give us sustenance and bring us hope. And what we see is that for some reason, God's gift doesn't always come wrapped exactly as we expected or wanted. And when that happens, we have a tendency, like the Hebrews, to reject it. This phenomenon is clearly on display even in the New Testament. In John's Gospel, for instance, Jesus is firmly propped up as the new Moses and more. 
propped up as the new Moses sent to lead the people into a new exodus. In John 6, the hints of this are more than subtle. Jesus feeds bread to the 5,000, and there is more than enough. Then Jesus walks on and over the water to offer them a new teaching and a new way of life. Then in John 6, 48, Jesus says this, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This is the bread of my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. There it is, the gospel. And upon hearing this, in verse 60, we're told, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. In the gospel, Jesus is the one that people have been crying out for. In the gospel, Jesus is God's response to those cries. In the gospel, Jesus is the manna from heaven. And in the gospel, Jesus is more than enough. But in the gospel... When the people were presented with the bread of more than enough, they found it strange and disturbing, and guess what? They rejected it. Most of them rejected it. Why? Because Jesus wasn't what they expected or wanted. Because in their minds, Jesus wasn't enough. He was God's response to their and our deepest sense of scarcity, but he wasn't enough. He wasn't enough because he wasn't exactly what they were looking for. He wasn't enough because he wasn't exactly what they wanted him to be. He wasn't enough for them. This morning, this story begs the question, is he enough for you? Is Jesus enough? What is it that you are looking for? What is it that is at the root of the root of the root of your deepest sense of scarcity? What is it that's keeping you from devouring every ounce of life that God wants to give you? And in the meantime, what is it that you've been doing To try to numb the pain, to mend the wounds, to fill the void. What is it? What is it? You know. And whatever it is, my guess is it hasn't been enough to fill the deepest longing of your souls and it never will be. What is it about us that still doesn't get that? I don't know. But I do wonder if maybe that's what the Hebrews meant when they said, what is it? Maybe, just maybe, they didn't just mean, what is this stuff? 
But maybe they meant, what is it about us? What is it about us? Why can't we just be grateful? What is it about us? Why can't we just feel secure? What is it about us? Why can't we just be happy with all that we have been given? What is it about us that enough is never enough? What is it? What is it that your soul is looking and longing for? God's answer to that question comes to us this morning in much the same way it came to them. No quick fixes. No self-help formulas. No magical day at the spa or day on the golf course to make it somehow all right. No, instead, God simply offers us Jesus who somehow in some way, if we're willing to receive Him day after day in all of the strange and subtle ways He may come to us, is enough. In fact, the Gospel tells us that He's more than enough. Do you believe that? In these moments before we sing our response, will you name before God what feels scarce in your life right now? In these moments before we sing, would you acknowledge before God what it is that you have been using to fill that void? In these moments before we sing, would you ask God to give you a glimpse of how God has been offering to fill that void? What is it that God has for you and for us in Jesus Christ this morning? What is it?